Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin, though, with Mike Armstrong from Global News. And Mike was on the air with us yesterday from Nice, France. He's still in Nice. And uh, there have been developments, as I understand it, as far as the mass murder of civilians and the terror attack was concerned. Mike, good to have you back. Thank you. Would you summarize for us, please, what the situation is now? That There have been developments since we spoke yesterday, some additional arrests or detentions. Mm-hmm. We have two more arrests today. So two, uh, a man and a woman, which brings it to a total of six people who are now in custody. Uh, his estranged wife, Mohammed Boulel's estranged wife, has actually been released. So basically we're, we're talking about people sort of from his entourage. There are reports out there that among those in custody, there are two Albanians uh, who are being held on suspicion of having provided the weapon that Bulal had. He had a pistol on him. Uh, There are also a series of text messages uh, that would have been sent from the cell phone that was found at the scene, uh, including one of the messages that's that's being reported on. It said, bring more weapons, bring five of them to C. Now, it's the letter C. I I don't know if that's a location or a person or, or whatever, but that is certainly something police are looking at right now. Uh, we've heard that the the killer was radicalized quickly, and you spoke to that yesterday, Mike, but we're trying to find out more about this 31-year-old. What is known about him specifically? You, you know, you mentioned just what he, what, he, what he had texted or emailed, but what do we know about him? Well, yesterday his father and his family, his brother in Tunisia, they talked about how he had no religion. He didn't pray, he didn't fast. Uh, basically, he was a Muslim uh, only because his first name was Muhammad, but other than that, he wasn't. Uh, the, the government came out yesterday and said that he was radicalized very recently and rapidly. And today we actually visited the apartment, um, went right into the building where he was living, the uh, building which, would, by the way, was raided by police. We spoke to his neighbor just down the hall, and she said that in recent months his appearance had changed so much that she actually thought someone new had moved in. And he had been letting his beard grow out, so he looked the way she put it, more religious. Um, now, we're also hearing that he had uh, given up drinking recently, so it does seem that he had become more devout in recent months, uh, and uh, the authorities are using the term uh, not just devout, but uh, radicalized. It's almost what we heard about the San Bernardino killer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what's the mood of the the French people? Uh, we talked about this a bit yesterday, you and I, the third terror attack, and we spoke about criticism being directed toward French President Francois Hollande. Are people visibly angry? Are they making demands of their government? You know, that's one of those things that you read in the paper. People, you know, uh, sort of officials and critics and stuff like that. But I'll tell you, when you speak to people on the street, and I mean literally on the, on the street, on the promenade here, uh, it really, they're talking about the emotions of what happened and the disbelief still. I haven't spoken to anybody who's sort of moved on to the next level and arguing about security or government not doing enough. That's not what you're getting from sort of regular people. Uh, you're still getting the, the folks that are turning up here, laying down flowers and saying, I don't believe what happened. I'm struggling with what happened. I'm trying to explain to my children what happened. Um, and what kind of a world is this right now? That's what you're hearing from people. Are people getting along, or is there any open resentment between uh, different um, ethnic and maybe uh, racial groups? 
I have heard that. Uh, we had a, a, a driver at one point who said, you know what, uh, he's a Tunisian living here in Nice, and he said there's been in the last couple of years, especially after Paris, more resentment uh, towards people from, uh, you know, with ties to other countries. Um, he was born here and raised here. He says, I, I'm French, you know, I'm of Tunisian origin perhaps, but I'm French. But he said it's gotten more difficult in recent months, and he said he's extremely nervous about what this is going to mean in the coming months. Um, it was actually disheartening to talk to him, if I can put it that way. No, I can understand that. And you spoke to us yesterday about some people being reluctant to go out in public places in France, that they're forcing themselves to go. You can't avoid doing that. I heard some of that from callers here in Canada after I spoke with you. Is there a growing fear of being in a public place in, in France? Have you heard any more about that? Well, I, that was more yesterday. I think most people that are coming out didn't appear nervous about being out there, but it's it's kind of the new normal. I think this is yeah. what people are going to have to deal with. Um, from here in, in in Nice to my kids in Montreal who watch this on uh, on television, read it, you know, they this is the news that they hear about all, every day. And so... Yeah. Mike, let's work with the delay. I have one more question for you, and that question is simply this. What has what has stood out most to you in the 24 hours since we spoke? What 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 has really stood out to you? Uh, as I stand here on the balcony overlooking the promenade, and I see joggers, and I see swimmers, and I see people lounging on the this beautiful beach, the French Riviera, literally a place I've always wanted to visit, and yet this portion of the road is still closed and I see people in front of me lighting candles and laying flowers in this beautiful, beautiful setting. And, and there's just this juxtaposition between the beauty and the horror directly in front of me. In front of me, as I look down off this balcony, it, it's, it's strange to wrap your mind around. Yeah, Mike Armstrong, thank you so much for joining us from Global News in Nice, France. Thank you, Mike. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Three police officers have been shot to death in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, today. Three others were wounded, according to the East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department. And the sheriff says one gunman was shot dead, but the two other suspects may be at large. Just reading from USA Today... Kelly Zimmerman of Our Lady of the Lake said that the hospital received five patients. Three were dead. One is in critical condition and the other is in fair condition. Rest assured, every resource is available or every resource available to the state of Louisiana will be used to ensure the perpetrators are swiftly brought to justice, said Governor John Bell Edwards in a tweet. And um, the Baton Rouge mayor's office urged people to stay home, stay off the streets for now in the immediate wake of the police shooting. Whatever the public crisis may be, and let's just talk about this country, whatever the public crisis may be in Canada, be it terrorism, be it an increase in criminal activity, be it any kind of law-breaking and societal disruption, you're going to have to turn to police in this country to be the first line of defense and engagement to defend the public. So how much do you trust police officers in Canada? And that's been a question, interestingly enough, that I've asked for 20 years on radio. And it's been answered sometimes in uh, several days of nonstop response, one program building on to another. Do you trust police? Angus Reid Polling asked that very question 
of Canadians, and just a few days ago released the information. John Wright joins me, senior fellow at Angus Reid. John, uh, what was the reason for the poll at this particular time? Was it the challenges between police and minority communities in the United States? Yes, and also we wanted to look at how visible minorities were perceived uh, in both countries when it came to how they looked at the police. Because, of course, we have had Black Lives Matter issues in uh, Toronto, and there have been some profiled cases in Canada as well. So we have two very different systems, but we did want to make some comparisons. We used some polling from Gallup to compare with our polling. What we found was in this country, roughly two-thirds of Canadians, in fact, uh, trust or have confidence in their local police forces. Um, And when you look at visible minorities, it's not that far off in this country, around 6 in 10. So roughly the same. In the United States, though, very different story. 57%, in fact, across the United States, uh, trusting um, their uh, their police forces in a local area, but only 39% of visible minorities. A very different gulf, because it's a very different situation there. How do you interpret this? How do you interpret well, this data? Well, I think in, in, let's put it let's put it in context with what's happened today in Louisiana. Yes. I, I mean, first of all, there are racial difficulties. There's no question about that. If you look at, at uh, Louisiana, it is a holdover from uh, you know what had happened back in the 1860s. It, it was not terribly progressive after the Johnson Civil Rights legislation came in, and we even witnessed that in the last uh, week or so after uh, Black Lives Matter had gone out to protest very peaceably in Louisiana, it was met with brutal force uh, of of basically armed uh, police officers who arrested one of the main leaders of the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement, caught on Periscope camera live so you could see he was doing absolutely nothing, and the intimidation was shown. Here's a a man who was arrested uh, for, and, and basically just for obstructing traffic when in fact he was not on the street, but taken down in a brutal way, and then ended up in the White House speaking with President Obama and his team only uh, four days later. So in in many ways, some iconic pictures which have come out of Louisiana, it is not to justify what's happened with the shooting. But you take a look at the United States, Roy, you have 35,000 people who are killed every year with with, uh, firearms. And in um, in Chicago alone, let's put it on a, on a scale with with Toronto. Chicago alone will have 4,000 murders this year, whereas Toronto will be lucky to hit 60. Uh, we have a gunned up president in the United States, uh, gunned up system in the United States. We have racial discrimination and we have intimidation on both sides. It's going to lead to a powder keg. Whereas, you know, in Canada, we simply don't have those dimensions. Although we do have some distrust in certain pockets, there, there's not the same evidence that it leads leads to murder or gun violence. Yeah, I saw that in your study, in your poll, rather. Saskatchewan and Quebec had the highest confidence in police at 78 and 77 percent, respectively. Um, In British Columbia, though, it was only about 50, 50 or slightly more, 54 percent, I think, had had, uh, confidence in police officers. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, you have to just take a look at what's happened in uh, British Columbia in the last uh, couple of years. I mean, we've had taserings and uh, done at the airport. We've had some uh, circumstances where the judicial inquiries had uh, the police there who uh, were charged with perjury and a number of other situations. Listen, I think the bigger thing is that if you look over the last 20 years, the confidence of police has dropped about 15 points across the country. And, and a lot of that just simply has to do, I think, with the fact that when something happens, 
happens to police officers, whether it be a special investigations unit or whether it's the police union, um, it, basically everybody gets off or, or there's a non-cooperation which leads to uh, situations where you don't know what has happened. There is just not the same transparency that you would hope from the uh, civilian side. So every time police are defended and get off, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't if uh, the circumstances matter, but there is a perception in certain parts of this country that no matter what the police do, there is just simply is no punishment or they get away with it. A last point on that. I mean, we saw a senior officer during the G20 in Toronto uh, took the fall basically for kettling hundreds and hundreds of innocent people who were then put in um, uh, jail holding cells for 24 hours. A huge inquiry went by. A conviction was registered uh, within the police service area that this man had, uh, you know, done the wrong thing. And essentially, before he could be uh, punished fully, he resigned from the force and retired. I, I, I mean, there's a sense oftentimes the police in this country may get away with some things, uh, but it's no nowhere near what's going on in the United States where yeah. social media is now capturing a whole lot of other stuff that we wouldn't even dream of happening here in this country. Many questions to be asked, many answers to be obtained, and the sorts of situations that happen happened over the last two weeks, two and a half weeks, between the police and the community, certainly in the United States, and some concerns in this country as well. This has to be dealt with. John, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you, my friend. My pleasure, Roy. Take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So tomorrow it starts the uh, Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Spoke yesterday with Mike Polanczyk, city councilor in Cleveland, good friend and you heard him explain the concerns that they have and talked about the uh, the exclusion zone around the Quicken Arena where you're not allowed to have certain items like paintball guns, slingshots, rockets. I understand that, rockets, aerosol cans and, and water pistols, but you can bring your gun. If you're a licensed gun owner, you can bring it, you can carry it, and that's what Mark Scaringi is going to be doing, Republican candidate and lawyer. He was on the air with us yesterday. I'm going to play that back for you in a couple of minutes because when, when I asked Mr. Scaringi specifically about under what circumstances he might use his handgun, a very interesting response. So we want to listen to that, and then we'll ask you whether it's just insanity to allow, and I understand it's the law in the state of Ohio, but you can, if you're a legislation or a legislature, you can pass some laws to exclude for a period of time the right to bring a firearm downtown. So you're going to hear that. And then later in the hour, Alison Azar will be back with us. Spoke to us last weekend about her former husband, Dr. Saran Azar, was being detained by Iran, which has the custody of their four children. He took them out of the country illegally. There's an arrest warrant for him. And Interpol is after him. And the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, offered and promised Alison Azar face-to-face that he would do everything he possibly can to bring her kids back to Canada safely. And when Iran contacted Canada, imagine that, Iran contacting us, saying, what do you want us to do? Interpol's after him, the RCMP's after him, Alison told us, that uh, Global Affairs Canada got in the way. Got in the way. And then guess what happened a couple of days ago? She was criticized by the federal government. The feds called her to criticize her. Why? Well, because she talked to me. Well, we'll talk to her about that. Andrew Lawton, my chorus radio colleague at AM 980 in London, talking about Cleveland and the Republican National Convention.
from which Donald Trump will emerge as the nominee for President of the United States. My Chorus colleague and friend Andrew Lawton is going to be in Cleveland covering the GOP convention for Chorus Radio. Andrew, great assignment. Yeah, indeed, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Now, tell us what you're going to be doing. Well, I actually just got into Cleveland uh, about an hour ago, so I've had the chance to go a little bit nearby where the convention's going, and it's a different world here. And what I'm going to be doing is trying to put sort of a, a face and boots on the ground uh, to share with Chorus listeners what's happening here. And uh, just as one major example here, in driving around just to even get to where I'm stationed, I saw that reporters had actually been issued bulletproof vests. Now, not all of them. Uh, but there are actually bulletproof vests with the word press on them. So I think that uh, really explains why there are so many tensions around here. I mean, from talk about firearms to uh, the threat of riots and protests, I think this will be like no other Republican convention. So it may be where what happens inside the convention center is uh, even less interesting or at least on par with what's happening outside. And I'm going to try uh, to bring for chorus listeners everywhere and all of the stations in the country uh, a little bit more insight and analysis uh, just by... by sort of vocalizing what's happening down here. So it's, I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, it starts tomorrow, but uh, the activity is already bustling today. Well, it sounds like it, and certainly when you when you get the the visual of, hand, of seeing bulletproof vests with the word press on it, that takes us to third world countries where riots are taking place and the media need to wear them in order to sometimes survive. Yeah, and it reminds us that this is not like any other convention. I mean, the media is usually the safest, but not uh, so today, it looks like. Yeah. Andrew, uh, all the best to you. Looking forward to hearing your reports, my friend. Thanks a lot, Roy. Andrew Lawton from uh, AM980 in London, our chorus radio station in London, Ontario. And he will, as you heard, be reporting from Cleveland starting tomorrow. He's there now. Why don't we play for you now the conversation I had yesterday with Mark Scaringi, Republican delegate, about why Mr. Scaringi and some of his fellow Republican delegates from the state of Pennsylvania will be taking their firearms to Cleveland. I guess they're already there with them. Here's how the conversation... Listen to this one now, by the way. Listen to the conversation. Listen to his answers. Here's how it went. Did you ever think you would find yourself at a, a place in life where you felt it was necessary to take a firearm to a political convention? Actually, no, but uh, you're exactly right. There are a lot of delegates, particularly from Pennsylvania, the ones I've been talking to, who are bringing their firearms. They have license to carry concealed uh, uh, firearms permits here in Pennsylvania. They're taking them to Cleveland because they're uh, so afraid of what awaits us there tomorrow. Is it, is it, is it fear of terrorism or is it fear of, uh, of domestic violence? Well, we have uh, the new Black Panther political party, uh, is arriving there today. They have uh, said that they're going to bring their AR-15s. Uh, they're going to open carry in Cleveland. Uh, Black Lives Matters will be there. Uh, there will be other agitators and disruptors. Uh, I fear this will be the most riotous convention we've had in the United States since the Democratic National Convention in 1968. I saw the story, the Reuters story, that the new Black Panther Party chairman had said that they would be taking their weapons to Cleveland. And then I saw another story that said he he had said that he never never said that to uh, to Reuters. But uh, regardless of, of what he may or may not have said, you're, you're broad-basing this beyond the Black Panther Party, in the new Black Panther Party. Are you afraid of, I mean, are you... I don't use the word afraid. Maybe it's the right word. Maybe not. Are you are you deeply concerned that there could be the kind of violence that would create the dynamic for firearms to be used? I, I am, yes. So we've had the Trump rallies all over the country 
throughout uh, the, the, the past several months, and innocent Trump supporters going into or out of uh, the, the meeting halls where they've had the Trump rallies have been assaulted, punched, uh, kicked, chased down, tackled. Uh, they've been bloodied. Uh, they've been leaving in their cars, and people would surround the cars and, and not let them leave. It, it's, there have been near riots uh, at several of the Trump rallies. San Jose, California probably received the most media attention. So we expect that to happen at any Trump rally. But this is the, the rally where he receives the nomination, so I think you can increase that times 10 or 20, and it really ha- has heightened everyone's concern. Under what circumstances, Mr. Scaringi, do you think firearms might be used? Because we're talking about the potential for, for dead bodies on the streets of Cleveland. Well, we had uh, the shooter in Dallas uh, just last week uh, shooting and and murdering in cold blood innocent uh, police officers uh, at a Black Lives Matter protest. It was supposed to be an innocent and peaceful rally or demonstration, and uh, it quickly uh, got out of control, and innocent uh, 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 American police officers are now dead as a result of that. So it doesn't take a whole whole lot, a few sparks uh, here and there, and uh, we'll have a riot uh, on our hands. The problem uh, with, with carrying your concealed firearm is we're not allowed to carry uh, in the convention center or near the convention center. There's going to be a security zone. So it makes it a little bit problematic if you want to carry. You, you really can't carry into and out of the place where you need your firearm for purposes of self-defense. Do you not have confidence in the police and the additional security to provide that kind of, well, safety safety zone? No, not really. I don't think that um, you know we can rely upon the the police to provide uh, the the level of safety and security that's needed. It, it, there's a big unknown here. Uh, anything can happen. And the, it, it, we want to be able to, to defend ourselves and rely upon ourselves for self-defense. It's just unfortunately that the policy uh, of the, the convention center uh, is that we can't carry in the convention. I mean, you all as delegates are going to the convention to nominate the, um, well, the nominee for the Republican Party. You're not going there for a gunfight. Well, that's exactly right. And... Uh, you know, I never, I never thought I would even be having uh, these thoughts and, and thinking about the necessity to arm oneself uh, in self-defense at a political party gathering. Uh, I'm a delegate elected uh, in the 4th Congressional District here in Pennsylvania. I simply want to go and exercise my, my right to assemble and my right to speech uh, and vote for my nominee for the Republican nomination for the presidency. It's a political gathering. I just want to go and exercise my political rights. Uh, that's all I have in mind, and that's all I want to do. The problem is there will be all kinds of agitators and disruptors, and I, I, I'm assuming uh, there will be rioting uh, to some extent going on outside of the convention center. And so that has, uh, that has caused uh, many of us to be concerned for our own personal safety. 
Mr. Scarinti, has there been any logistical planning going on among delegates who are taking firearms to the convention, saying, we'll be here in a certain area, we'll all be together, we'll provide whatever safety and whatever cover we may re- be required to, 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 uh, to provide, sort of a, I don't know, an auxiliary armed force of some kind? Well, Roy, there has been some communication between and among some of the Republican delegates, uh, gentlemen who I know and, and I'm, I'm friends with, and and they'll be taking uh, their firearms. Uh, we have Pennsylvania has uh, a reciprocity with Ohio, so that Ohio will recognize Pennsylvania's license to carry concealed, uh, and vice versa. Uh, so there are there are several of the Republican uh, delegates from Pennsylvania who who will be carrying, and uh, the Republican Party of Pennsylvania, our Republican State Committee. Uh, they are assuring us that uh, we are we are going to be secure and safe, and they're providing busing and hotel accommodations, and they're doing a great job, and they're giving us all of the assurances. Uh, but you know, one never knows, and that's why you you want to be able to exercise your right to defend yourself. And what about the uh, Republican Party nationally? How are they reacting to the fact that some of you will be taking firearms to, to the convention? Well, we, yeah, we see we can't take them into the convention, and uh, that's the that is the decision by the convention owner, and uh, the Republican National Committee is is obviously ex- accepting that uh, that policy decision. But I will tell you that there have been reports that the the city of Cleveland Police Department uh, is now uh, taking security much more seriously after the shootings in Dallas last week. And apparently there are now even more security precautions being put into place. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, if, if it turns, if it becomes nasty, if the worst case scenario that you've, you have concerns about materializes, I can't imagine how the election campaign itself will unfold. It, I mean, this, this could be uh, awful. Well, I think, I think uh, we've already seen signs of it uh, in the past few months with the riots and the demonstrations uh, and the violence uh, at uh, several Trump rallies, the violence instigated, uh, conducted by the agitators and disruptors who were there protesting uh, and agitating uh, against Trump and the Trump supporters. We've already seen it. I think we're going to see it big time in Cleveland, and I think it's going to go all... It's a shame. It's sad. Uh, It's not what uh, the American political system should be all about, but it's the unfortunate reality in which we live. So there is Mark Scarinci, lawyer and delegate to the Republican Party convention, which will nominate Donald Trump as the presidential candidate, and he's taking his gun to the convention. Feels it's necessary. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of democracy. But he's going to take his gun to the convention, and there is concern that there will be violence. You heard Andrew Lawton talk about We'll be covering it for Chorus Radio. Bulletproof vests being handed out to, to journal, journalists. This isn't a joke. You don't hand out bulletproof vests with press written on it. Unless you have a legitimate concern, a real worry. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Allison Azur has been a guest on this program. I, I think this is the fourth time I'm speaking with Allison. She wants her four Canadian children back. There's an arrest warrant out for her husband, Canada-wide. 
Uh, but he's skipped. He's gone overseas, said that he's in Iran. Um, the RCMP is after him. Interpol is after him. The Prime Minister of Canada promised Alison he would do whatever he could to get her children back face-to-face, personal promise. And last weekend, Alison, good to have you back with us. Uh, FindAsOurKidsNow.com is the website. Last weekend, you told us that even though Iran seemed amenable to doing what they had to do to get your kids back to Canada, it was foreign affairs or global affairs, as it's called now, Canada, that got in the way. That's true. That's true. Hi, Roy. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me on again. Well, good to talk to you. So remind us, please, what it is that Global Affairs Canada did to, 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 to muddy up the waters. Yeah, so it seems to be in direct violation of Canada's obligations as a signatory to Interpol. There seems to be political interference um, with having the RCMP do their job and work with Interpol and Iran to get my children, the Azer kids, back to Canada where they belong. So of all the countries in the world to cooperate, that might surprise you, Iran is the one. And and you told us they, they appear to be prepared to cooperate with Canada. They have your ex-husband, they have the children. They said, now what do you want us to do? Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. And I heard it um, straight up last week. Um, officials with Global Affairs said that they are not permitting RCMP to do their jobs and speak um, directly with Interpol Iran. And, you know, Roy, I... I was waiting to start to talk to you, and I thought, um, okay, Allison, you, you have to rally. You know, Roy has been incredible. I, I feel so down. I feel in such despair, Roy. I don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. This is our government. This is a prime minister who faced you face-to-face and promised to you that he would do whatever he could to get your children back, and his government is interfering, from what you told us, interfering in the process of the RCMP working with Interpol to get your children back to Canada. And then, what did, what happened, Allison, after you talked to me? Well, we just continue, I continue to feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. I don't understand why it seems that global affairs is protecting an Interpol fugitive at the expense of four little kids who have missed an entire year of a Canadian childhood where they've gone to school and they've had their traditions and they've had their mom and their grandparents. They never, ever asked to be put in this situation, living in a war zone, taken illegally into Iran. Why is it that global affairs is blocking efforts to get my kids home. And they they criticized you for talking to me, I guess. Exactly. I guess they would rather that this story didn't get out. I, um, you know, I'm not new at my job. I've been at it now for almost a year, and my job being the mother of four abducted kids. And when I first this first happened, I was so terrified and petrified of doing the wrong thing. And I really believed that there were these systems in place who, you know, they never believed me when I told them that this is what was going to happen with the kids, that the father was going to abduct them. And I thought once the abduction took place, at the very least, they would have the decency 
to make this a priority to get my kids home. And it's, I don't know if they think like the longer they drag this out, that eventually I'll just give up and forget about it. It's just so awful. And they, and they tell you, here's an opportunity for them to at least proceed and have the RCMP interact with Interpol and get your children back, because as you explained to us, the Iranians seem agreeable to that, or at least talking about it, taking steps in that direction, and, and Global Affairs Canada gets in the way, and then they tell you, ask, they chide you for having spoken to media. Yeah, I guess what's happening to me just really doesn't line up with this new government's brand of being, you know, their sunny ways. And, you know, our prime minister himself is a parent of young children, just like mine. And I guess the truth about what they're doing, which is really sacrificing four little Canadian kids. Yeah, I guess that doesn't really line up with the sunny face that they're trying to present to Canadians. I guess not. But Canadians can go to findazerkidsnow.com and get engaged and get involved. Call your member of parliament. Call the prime minister. Just go to just just Google contact prime minister of Canada and the first thing that's going to pop up is the page where you can send an email directly to the prime minister's office. Allison, we're just going to stay in touch with you and just keep working with you. I'm really counting on you, Roy, and you're not letting me down. And I know your listeners won't let me down. I'm, I'm really on my knees here, and I'm begging. We won't begging let you down. You for your support. We won't let you down. We'll stay with you. Bless you. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Thank you, you too. Bye, Allison. Bye-bye. Findazerkids.com. A-Z-E-R. Findazerkids.com. You heard Allison. You heard the mother. Help her get her kids back. You know how to get in touch with Justin Trudeau. He made a promise. Make him keep it. We'll come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There was the shooting death of Alton Sterling. There was the shooting death of a gentleman in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And then the five police officers in Dallas and now four police officers in Bratton Rouge. And uh, Natalia Verdina is telling us that there is definitely a, a racial issue in the Deep South and a racial issue in Louisiana. She mentioned that on several occasions. And uh, could this be, could this shooting of the four police officers today relate specifically to the shooting death of uh, Alton Sterling? That cannot be dis- dismissed. Uh, Ron Miller is an associate dean at Liberty University. He's a nine-year veteran of the United States Air Force, a senior executive formerly with FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security. He's also African-American, father of a 21-year-old son, who Ron described to me in a private conversation as a gentleman, but who can appear intimidating. And Ron has had that, what's called, conversation with his son about how to respond if challenged by police. A black father isn't as confident his son will come home at the end of an evening as a white father is certainly in some parts of the world, some parts of the United States. 
And it's been frequently talked about, particularly in the last 10 days to two weeks. You can go um, onto ronsreflections.net, which is Ron Miller's website, and you can read Ron's blog postings. He wrote one today, and I read it earlier today, that has to do with the difference uh, or the racial tension. And Ron approaches this from a deeply religious perspective, but speaks to the issues that confront whites and blacks and blacks and whites. And uh, it's Ron Miller joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We've been talking for 10 years, I think, Ron, at least. <laughs> we have been. And, and the issues, I don't know if they're more complex and more complicated today uh, or whether it's just, whether I don't want to say just, whether we've reached a tipping point in concerning the issues we've been talk, talking about. If you look at today, four dead police officers in Baton Rouge, five in Dallas, what happened previously with the two African-Americans who were shot and killed. We just heard the reporter talk about a racial component in the Deep South are, is this a tipping point? What is it? Where are we? Well, we might be at a tipping point in the sense that because of the nature of media today, a lot of people who may not have otherwise been exposed to these things are now seeing them possibly for the first time. And what you see in a lot of the debate and discussion that's going on right now is people coming, trying to come to grips with what they're seeing because if you've not been aware of it or not exposed to it, it can come as a shock. Imagine what it must have been like in the 1960s when, for the first time, people were seeing on their television screens in their living rooms uh, the use of fire hoses and dogs against peaceful protesters in the South. It was a shock to the system of the nation at the time, and I think that it awakened the nation to the fact that there had been this different regime, if you will, in one part of the United States that had persisted for decades um, after the Reconstruction era, and they were appalled by what they saw. And I think that some of that is being exposed now, uh, things that probably went underground. And they talk about uh, peacemaking versus peacekeeping. And I think what has been done to this point is that we've managed to keep this uneasy peace but it's like an underground fire that's just smoldering underneath the surface. And every now and again, you have an eruption, something that comes out. And that's what we're seeing right now. The question is, every time we have one of these, is it going to be something that we just tamp down again until the next time we have an eruption? Or are we going to confront it and try to deal with it once and for all? Which one do you think is going to prove to be the case? Where are we now? I don't know that either of the sides of the racial divide have sufficient humility to be able to deal with it honestly. And when I talk about humility, I mean this. Rather than spending our time preparing what our arguments are going to be against the other side, stopping and taking the time to hear what they have to say and acknowledge that we don't have those experiences, so maybe there's something there that we should listen to. Maybe there's something that we need to understand. Um, it's really difficult from what I've observed to get people to stop and consider the other side because they're too busy formulating their own arguments about why it's not that way. And you think of things on a person-to-person -person basis. If you tell a friend that you are in pain and that there is, this is the reason for that pain, 
is your expectation that that friend is going to tell you, no, you're not really hurting? Or is your expectation that that friend is going to listen to you and try to help you through that pain, at least try to give you comfort? And then maybe at a certain time down the road, once you've earned the right to be heard, you can then start talking about what it is you can do to arrive at a solution. Right now, where we are in America, is one side is expressing pain, and the other side is basically repudiating that pain by either deflecting it, denying it, or dismissing it. And so that just causes the tensions to rise, and it does nothing to change the situation. You're a deeply religious man, and you quote scripture in your most recent blog on ronsreflections.net. I read it this morning, and it's, it's, it's something I think everybody should read, ronsreflections.net. You also write that many of your black friends believe God is separating the oppressor and the oppressed and will act to, quote, render judgment on the oppressor and spare the oppressed, end quote. That makes me feel like, and I'm looking at the United States from the perspective of somebody who lives in Canada, but it makes me feel like, and I saw those images in the 1960s. I was a kid, but I, I saw the images, and I, it, was, it was surreal I, I, to, to see you know, dogs attacking people and fire hoses turned on people who were just trying to do what I did every day. Uh, I ask myself, Ron, have we or have you as a society in the United States really traveled any distance at all? Or has there just been a really good, at times, public relations campaign that has made it seem as though the situation has improved? The United States elected its first black president, re-elected him, made people feel like things have, made, things have changed dramatically. What's the truth? As always, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, we can't deny the progress we've made. We look at the increase in the size of the black middle class. We look at black access to public facilities. We look at the elimination of Jim Crow laws and laws that forbid blacks from being in certain uh, facilities or being in segregated facilities. We look at the fact that blacks no longer have to walk down the street in fear that just a mere glance or the wrong move could end up having them lynched. Um, we've clearly come a long way. If you talk to anybody who was raised in the 1940s and 1950s when they were in fear of their lives on a daily basis, depending on how a white person uh, reacted to something they did, we're certainly not there now. Where we are right now is dealing with one of the residual impacts of those, those, those times. And we can't deny the fact that the history still is a factor because it was only about 50 years ago that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. And so we can't say that at that particular moment, everything that happened in the 400 plus years preceding that suddenly went away. We know that that still has a residual effect on blacks and whites in America. And one of the residual effects is the relationship between the black community and law enforcement. When you consider that for decades, law enforcement was either actively involved in the persecution of blacks in America, or they looked the other way while white mobs did what they would with black Americans. That's developed an atmosphere of deep mistrust between the black community and law enforcement. You add to that the fact that policy decisions on crime have led to massive incarceration rates on the part of blacks and other minorities in our prison system. 
and you have a situation where there is a perception, whether you believe it or not, that law enforcement is intrinsically biased against uh, black Americans and other minorities. And so that's the atmosphere that these uh, flashpoints are occurring. And so somehow we have to get to a point where we can somehow address not only from a policy perspective what we can do to deal with the burden of law enforcement on the black community, but what do we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis in communities across America to get law enforcement and minority communities to work together because they do have a vested interest in working together. Um, the black community needs law enforcement to protect them from criminals and other predators in their midst. By the same token, law enforcement needs to rebuild trust so that they can carry out their job in a way that shows them not as an adversarial force that's standing out there like an army, but as public servants who are protecting and serving the community. Ron Miller, Associate Dean at Liberty University, is uh, with me on the program today, a nine-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force, senior executive with FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security. He teaches government at Liberty University and African-American father of a 21-year-old son, and uh, we're talking about ronsreflections.net is his webpage. Have a look. Go look at Ron's blog posts. Um, so we have the four dead police officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, five in um, Dallas, Texas. We have the African-American men who were shot and killed by police officers preceding that. The two, one in, in uh, Baton Rouge, one in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and, Ron, one of the questions I have, and I want to talk to you about the conversation you had with your son as a black father with a black son and when you have the conversation, the conversation about meeting police, something most white fathers may not have conversation, they may not have. But one of the questions I have is this. How does what's happened over the last 10 to 12 days impact on young people impact on young people who are impatient, who are restless, who are angry, who are frustrated. And, and we can talk about both sides of the racial divide um, in that regard. Uh, what's the impact on young people? Well, from what I'm observing, uh, the impact ranges from uh, some thoughtful reflection on the part of, uh, of many, uh, particularly some of the students that I encounter who are looking for answers rather than looking to to be angry or agitated. And then you do have those who carry this as a great burden, and a lot depends on what their experiences are with law enforcement or with racism in general. For those who have had those kinds of encounters, those kinds of experiences, uh, this is just a reminder, and, it, and I think in some respects it, uh, it's a reminder that they're not safe, at least not in their own minds. And because of this, they react in a much more emotional fashion than someone who's not had those experiences and is looking at this from a more abstract point of view. Can you talk to us about, again, it's been referenced as that conversation that a black father has with his son about an eventual encounter with police? Yes, that's a, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, before... I had this conversation, the thought was that every parent did, but I, I've, I've come to see that that's not exactly the case. It's something that I was taught and that I just felt the need to pass on to my son, 
He's 21. He's a senior at Liberty University. Um, he's a good student, a very gentle and quiet kid. And I say kid, he's bigger than me. <laughs> but he is a, he's a large kid. He's six foot three, 275 pounds. And he can look intimidating to, to someone. And it, it bothers me that he could be stopped for a traffic citation or something like that. And that because of his size and the fact that he looks intimidating, he could be perceived as a threat. So we do have, we did have that discussion and he's always been very polite and very respectful. He's always yes, sir. And no, sir. Um, and, um, so in that respect, um, although I feel like we've given him, and this, and this is something I want to say, we cannot control what's going to happen out there. We can only give him good instruction and hope that it will uh, keep him safe. And I, I wouldn't say that that's a conversation that um, I was frustrated that I had to have. I, I, I think I just did it because it was necessary as a father. But I do know um, that he has two sisters who, who are fearful for him as they see all of these things happening. Um, um, they, they're concerned for him and what could happen if he found himself in, a, in an encounter with law enforcement. Unfortunately, that's not something we, we've had to deal with. And um, at least in my observation, in the little city we live in here in central Virginia, it appears that we've got, uh, we've got some level of unity and some level of, of conversation going on here. I wouldn't say that it's perfect. It never is. But um, somebody said today that you've got so many churches here in Lynchburg, but maybe that's the reason why people spend a lot of time talking. I know churches who have predominantly black and predominantly white congregations have gotten together here in Lynchburg to address social problems and try to deal with some of the ills that they see. And so maybe that's made a difference. Uh, if I if I may ask, how does the conversation go when when you start the conversation with your son about you passed down you passed along about an encounter with police because you have a concern that your son because of because he's black and because he's big and because he could get stopped for a traffic citation because he could look intimidating you you have concerns for him how does the how does the conversation go if I may ask? Well. You kind of said, son, you basically initiate the conversation with a tone that leads him to realize, oh, he's going to have one of those serious conversations, and I hope it's not about sex. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets that look on his face. But once, once I assure him that that's not the topic, I then talk about you know, how he's supposed to conduct himself when he is in the presence of an authority figure. And um, he's, he's been an athlete most of his life, so... Uh, there's a lot of regimentation and a lot of discipline that that's instilled within him, which is part of why he does have, I think, a healthy respect for authority. But what I try to tell him is, said, look, I know that you will never, hopefully never find yourself in a situation where you're stopped by the police because you've done something wrong. But if you, you never know what the circumstances might be where you might be pulled over. You know, you made a inadvertently done something that calls attention to yourself or they may be looking for someone or something and there's some kind of a uh, dragnet out there. You never know. But when you go out there in public and in your vehicle and if you are stopped by the police, um, you need to make sure that they understand that you're not a threat 
That means be respectful. Don't be argumentative. It means have your hands visible at all times. Um, um, now he's um, he's multiracial. His mother's white, so um, he um, he looks a little bit different, but not not so much so that you couldn't see a cop thinking that uh, here's a black kid I need to talk to for whatever reason. Um, so do, do it was a sorry. I was going to say it was a, not not the most pleasant conversation, but I think he, he, he took it well and he understood it. And I've watched him in encounters with uh, law enforcement because we have a criminal justice program in the, in the school home school of government where I teach. And he um, has dealt with them and spoken with them and done so in a very respectful manner. There's good a good give and take between them. Yeah. Um, and I, I, one of the things I do intend to do when the new semester starts is talk to my one of the program directors in our school, who's a former uh, Virginia Beach police officer, 31 years on the force there, and now uh, runs our criminal justice program here at Liberty, and just see what kind of things is he going to be dealing with as students come to him in the fall with all of these things that are happening. Yeah, yeah. So, so your son... Not only is his dad going to have conversations about sex with him, but he's also his teacher at university, just to lighten things up a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think that would be an intimidating reality in life. What did your What did your son? How did your son react to the conversation when when you're having the talk with him? And um, yeah, how how did he react? How did he respond? He was very positive about it. You know, I, 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 I'm always thankful for the fact that we seem to have raised a, a kid who is very humble and, and very gentle in every way. And um, I got a lot of yes sirs and no sirs and um, a very, very quiet and, and respectful response. There wasn't any of the, um, the, the, the temperament or angst that says, why do I even have to think about these things, which sometimes that can happen. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I think his sisters were probably more agitated about the conversation than he was. Yeah, he was um, and, and I, I basically, I, I relayed to them that I'd had that talk with him, and uh, one got very emotional and one got very angry. So I'm thinking to myself, they had more of a reaction to it than he did. It sounds like you have a remarkable young man as a son, uh, I have one more question for you, Ron. You, you, you write about, again, looking at your blog this morning, you write about Black Lives Matter in your blog and what the reaction has been even within the Christian community and among people you know directly. Please address that for us. Yes. Um, a lot of people, when you hear the term Black Lives Matter, um, you, the response that they will have is, well, all lives matter. And apparently that is not the right response. And it's something I had to learn through observation and conversation with others. A lot of whites don't like the term Black Lives Matter, number one, because they do feel it's exclusive. It's not meant to be exclusive. Or they feel that it somehow elevates black lives above others. It's also not meant to do that. In fact, if you look at America's history, the point of the phrase Black Lives Matter is that at least up to this point in American history, they haven't mattered as much as others. And so what they're saying, there's a two implied at the end of that statement, black lives matter too. And in fact, I found a historical corollary 
back in the days of the abolition movement when the phrase, am I not a man and a brother, became a slogan of the abolitionist movement. I said it's very similar to that. It's black people trying to say, we matter too, just as you do. But when you say all lives matter, that's, that's, a, that's dismissing that statement. It's basically, and, and, and it may not be what they intend. Let me put that out there. It may not be what people intend when they say that. Because obviously, as a Christian, I believe that all lives matter to God. That's, that's simply, that's not only biblical, it's part of the American creed and our Declaration of Independence. But the fact is that when you say that to a black person who's trying to call attention to their perception that up to this point in American history, their lives have not been valued at the same level as others, when you say all lives matter, you're basically saying, well, you don't have a legitimate claim to make that statement. Ron, I thank you for the time, as always. And we have been talking for 10 years. been great conversations. You've, uh, you've really uh, shed a lot of common sense light on, on issues that, uh, that require that. Common sense is one of those uh, common denominators that I think that we all can employ to sometimes at least get to the point where we can start a conversation that has some value and some meaning, ultimately, uh, all of us. Ron Miller, thank you so very much. I look forward to our next talk. As do I, Roy. Thank you very much. All the best to you. Ronsreflections.net is uh, where you'll find Ron's website. Associate Dean at Liberty University. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.